we are told he is covered with sores. The word sore here is used for surface ulcers, abscesses. These would be oozing sores. And he doesn't have just a couple. He is covered with these sores. I think of Job having boils from his head to his toe. Here is this man covered with sores. Jesus is painting a picture of profound suffering. Crippled, lying, begging, covered with oozing sores, and yet there's more. And longing, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. He is longing to be fed. Sounds like it's been a while since he's had a square meal. It's kind of interesting. People in this day, when they dined, they didn't have napkins. They used an old piece of bread. So as you're dipping your, your bread into the sauce or the whatever, olive oil, you might get a little messy. You don't have a napkin. You just have this piece of bread set to the side, probably not the best bread, and you just kind of wipe your hands on that to get them clean. When you're done and you've messed up that piece of bread enough, you just toss it to the floor. This is what Lazarus is longing for, just some floor food. You know, we have the five-second rule at our house. You probably have the five-second rule. Oh, it hit the floor. Oh, if I get it fast enough, it's okay. I can still eat it. This would have just been setting on the floor, swept up, floor food. I'm that hungry. I'm that hungry. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. This is kind of interesting. The Hebrews viewed dogs with utter disgust. In the Bible, they are usually described as a scavenger. Now, I mean, you're, I, are you thinking what I'm thinking when I read this in the Bible dictionary? I'm like, viewed with utter disgust? Wait a minute. What about the Syrophoenician woman and the conversation she has with Jesus about dogs eating the crumbs that fell from the master's table? Well, I checked that out. And the word there for dog in that conversation is little dog. It's a different word. It's a little dog. It's like a papillon, a Pekingese, maybe a chihuahua hanging around under the table, a little dog. But these are real dogs. The word for dog here is dog dog. Dogs of the streets, scavengers. I'm thinking maybe, maybe like sometimes when we're uh, driving down the road and a coyote, we live in the country, comes rumbling across the road, usually rather rapidly. You don't see them very often during the day. Skin and bones, mangy, nasty, scavenger, dog. And here is Lazarus, and we're thinking, okay, it paints a little bit different picture. When I was a little boy, we had a puppy dog, and I would skin my knee, and he would lick my skin knee. But he's covered with oozing sores, head to toe, here are these dogs of the street, and he cannot fend them off. He is a crippled beggar. Well, with this last detail, Jesus completes his portrait of our two main characters. We have a rich man and a poor man. The rich man is covered with purple and fine linen. The poor man is covered with oozing sores. The rich man lives in a grand house with a gate. The poor man lies at that gate in the public the rich man celebrates daily, holding feasts 
The poor man is visited by the dogs. So we have a rich man who is as rich as our poor man is poor. The picture of extreme contrasts. It's a good time to remember. So what are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the object of this parable. They are the audience. They are the target audience. What are they thinking right now? They're hearing this story. Where are their heads at? Well, in regards to the rich man, they would probably be thinking something along the lines of, wow, what a blessed life. He has the favor of God upon him. That's my guy. That's my guy. I hope I can afford or attain to the life he's arrived at. wonder exactly how he got there. I'm not far off. That's my guy. That's the guy I'm connecting with. The Lazarus, what are their thoughts there? Wow, who sinned? This guy? Was this guy born this way? Did his parents sin? You remember the man born blind in John? Who sinned? Who messed up? Whew, what a filthy, stinking mess. Stay away. Almost had a karma-like attitude towards people. Like, oh, uh, don't get too close to that. It might, it, you might impact something. Thinking, they're thinking something like, you know, when I go to the market, there's a guy just like that on the south side of the market. That's why I always go into the north. And I, I, I avoid that man. So now, thinking that, imagine their reaction as Jesus continues this story. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away. By the angels to Abraham's bosom. Synapses are exploding all over the place right now in their mind. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. This is not the way this parable is to go in their minds. Both men die. Interestingly, that's where most stories end, but this story is just beginning. Back in the day, they used to say, a shroud has no pockets, like a death shroud. There's no pockets there. Today, we say things like, uh, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. They both left everything behind. It's kind of interesting. You know, there's no estate with a gate, no celebration, no purple and fine linen, no feast, not a scrap of wealth. Think of what Lazarus left behind. A crippled body, oozing festering sores, harassing dogs, his hunger. Both of their lives have been completely uh, the, the left behind, left behind. Did you notice that the rich man was buried? It says buried. This indicates he had a proper funeral. His body was prepared. It was likely a tomb, time of mourning. Uh, we've seen the professional mourners in the scriptures before. There were probably a few of those for him. He would have been able to afford them, or his estate would have. Lazarus, on the other hand, you'll note, was not buried. 
It said he was carried away by the angels, but what became of his body? The angels didn't take his body. The body of someone in his position would have either would either be put in a common grave or hauled outside the city and buried, excuse me, and burned in the trash dump. But he himself, Lazarus, his soul, his being, was carried away by the angels. Wow. To Abraham's bosom. That is largely antiquated words for us. We would simply say, to Abraham's side. Think of John at the Last Supper at Jesus' side. He was the one who was so close, he could just lean back against Jesus and go, who's the betrayer? That's, that's the picture we're getting here. This is how close Abraham and Lazarus are. To be at Abraham's side was to be in a place of blessing and indicates his being received into the fellowship of heaven. You can be certain the Pharisees knew Abraham was in heaven. So for Jesus to say he's at Abraham's bosom, they know where Lazarus is at. Lazarus has gone from being a lonely sufferer in the company of dogs at the rich man's gate to accepted in heaven at the side of the great patriarch. Verse 23, we learn the fate of the rich man. It begins, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Notice the transition is immediate. In verse 22, he shuts his eyes in death. In verse 23, he opens them in torment. While Hades is maybe more of a generic term in the Old Testament, perhaps maybe like just grave in the New Testament, not so much. And specifically in the teaching of Jesus, Hades is a place of punishment. It is hell. What does he see? Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He is a long, 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 long way from the place of blessing, from Abraham's side where Lazarus is. A new reality, and it is an eternal reality. It is ultimate reality. It's the one that matters. The Pharisees at this point would be beside themselves. What? This man was under the blessing of God. What happened? And the poor man, what? the hand of God was clearly against him. How does he end up at Abraham's side? This is nuts. They had a Job's friends. They had a Job's friend-like theology. It's important to realize Jesus told this parable out of compassion. He was seeking to slice through a very thick layer of bad theology. If the scoffing Pharisees remain as they are, they will spend eternity in Hades just like the rich man. Now the story turns to a dialogue between the rich man and Abraham it goes through three exchanges. The first exchange begins like this. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. See, the rich man is fully conscious. He's completely aware of where he is. Seeing Abraham, he cries out to him for mercy. Interesting, he's not cursing. He's not screaming in defiance. He's not arguing his case. He even speaks 
deferentially. Father Abraham, he addresses him properly. Perhaps he is hoping his Jewish heritage is the connection that will get him what he seeks. The irony here is thick. The rich man seemed not to notice Lazarus on earth, but now he appeals through Abraham for Lazarus' help. And the fact that he calls Lazarus by name tells you he knew him all along. The feeling this is part of why Jesus gave Lazarus a name, not just the poor man, so you can see this rich man knew him. He didn't just, it wasn't just a generic poor man he was walking by. It was Lazarus. You can see he hasn't quite adjusted. He, he sees Lazarus as a servant. Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus, right? I'm down here in Hades suffering. Send Lazarus. The rich man has not fully come to grips with his situation. But his request, interestingly, is quite meager. Imagine the degree of his situation. All he's at is just a drop of water. A meager request. Just as Lazarus's was meager. Just a crumb from that table. Just a crumb that falls from the table. And just as there were no crumbs for Lazarus, there's going to be no water for the rich man. Here's the most sobering part. For I am in agony in this flame. We're not surprised to find suffering and flames in this place of judgment. It's presented in this fashion repeatedly throughout Scripture, so much so that seemingly everyone knows. Everyone. Christian and non-Christian alike, everyone knows the place of judgment is full of fire and heat and anguish. It's a place of torment. You pick up the words four times over. Being in torment, you are in agony. Agony in this flame, this place of torment. And yet, today, it is the stuff of cartoons and jokes. It is scoffed at and ridiculed. You study this text. It is sobering. This is very serious. Our enemy has done everything he can to diffuse the reality of hell that those who are lost are going to find themselves in. Abraham's first response is a lengthy and reasoned response. He makes two points. Abraham speaks kindly in response to the rich man. He addresses him, child, acknowledging his heritage. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. It's an interesting observation. I studied this text quite a bit before I went to secondary sources. That's always how you want to study the Scriptures. Stay in that book. Read those words over and over and over but I would not have picked up the delicate observation here. In life, the rich man had his good things. The adjective your 
is significant. Notice it says, you received your good things. He had what he chose. He could have spent his time with the things of God. He could have delighted in the word of God. He could have engaged in charity. For him, he chose his good things. He had, good things for him had been purple, fine linen, joyous daily living. He had chosen what he wanted, and now he would have to abide by this choice. Lazarus, you'll note, it doesn't say his bad things. It just says Lazarus received bad things. Life is that way sometimes. There's no his there in front of the bad things. Lazarus, like Job, had not been responsible for the bad things he suffered. He took them and endured them patiently. The second point Abraham makes is clear and decisive. The matter here is settled for all time. This is equally sobering as the flames. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. And besides all this, in, this, in addition to everything I've just told you, there is another factor. Even if I, what I told you were not so, we have another issue. There is a great chasm fixed. The chasm is unbridgeable. It cannot be altered. It is fixed. The Greek word is sterizo. It is fixed. It has been placed there by God. And there's a purpose, so that, we have a so that there, there's a purpose to this chasm. The text tells us no one can pass from one area to the other in either direction. It's over. The separation is ultimate separation. It is final. This is it. The conclusion, it is simply too late. Nothing can be done. Not even a drop of water can be given in relief. The side of the chasm on which you land in eternity is where you will be. End of story. The rich man seems to accept this, 27, he says, and he said, then, in light of that, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, that would be Lazarus, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. He recognizes his situation is helpless, it's settled, so how about my brothers? And this is interesting, this is the first time in this parable, in the story that Jesus is weaving, this is the first time he's had a thought for anyone other than himself. But, interestingly enough, once again he assumes that Lazarus is the servant. He can be dispatched on an errand on his behalf. Verse 29, but Abraham said, here's the answer. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. A special messenger is not what is needed. They have the scriptures. They contain all the warning 
they need to avoid this place of torment. They have Moses and the prophets. I was like, what's in Moses and the prophets? Just random studying the scriptures question one would ask oneself. And I was reading in my kind of daily Bible reading, I came through Luke 24. That's the road to Emmaus. Listen to this. This is, this, is a, this is terrific. This set me back in my chair when I came across this. I went, wow. Verse 25, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to Cleopas and the uh, other disciple who is unnamed. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It's all there. It's all there. They have Moses and the prophets. But the rich man becomes a little disagreeable. This is round three. And he wants to press the point. He's sure Moses and the prophets won't cut it. It's not enough. I wonder if he has this thought because he knows the place of Moses and the prophets amongst his family. They're never going to pick that up and read it. Here he goes, verse 30. But he said, No, Father Abraham. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This was helpful to me. Notice what the rich man wants for his brothers in order to avoid the judgment he is suffering, that they would repent. It's not about just having bad things in life and then having that made even. Sometimes when I read this parable, I think maybe it's, it, it almost seems to read that way to me. No, no. To get where, away from where the rich man is in hell, he would have to repent. There would have to be a change of heart. Where would that change of heart come from? Abraham's answer, Moses and the prophets. Where they will learn of their sin and God's promise of a redeemer. The rich man believes a miraculous visit from the grave by someone they know, like Lazarus warning them. Interesting. Apparently, the brothers walked around by Lazarus as well and knew him by name and did not alleviate his suffering. But he's thinking, Lazarus shows up, that'll do the trick. Then they'll listen. Abraham says no. And did you notice that Abraham actually raised the bar a little further? The rich man asked for a visit from the dead, but Abraham said not only would a visit from the grave not work, not just a visit from the dead, Abraham says not even someone rising from the dead. This is interesting because going forward, we know this is going to be put to the test. I will call this a providential coincidence. Lazarus of Bethany, the historical Lazarus, 
is going to be raised from the dead, how will the Pharisees respond? Will they repent? Have a change of heart? Perhaps you remember at the end of John 12, when Pastor Matt, we were going through that text, they plotted to kill Lazarus. I have to tell you, I find a little humor in that. Does it really work to kill somebody who has been raised from the dead? Will they just do it again? I'm sorry, uh, that was... That's, that's the conclusion of the text. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. A few points of application. The first is, is obvious. If you're here and you don't know where you'll be after death, you need to hear the warning of this passage. When you enter eternity, you will land on one side or the other of a chasm. And that is final. Where you land is where you will stay. There is no second chance. There's no do-over. If you're planning on entering heaven when you die, based on even a hint of your goodness, you will fall short. Yes, the rich man thought of nothing but his own pleasure, and you might be thinking, I'm not that bad. I actually think of other people from now and then. In fact, I think of other people a lot. You know, you might be right. You might not be that bad, but the problem is you are, as all of us are, bad enough. The Scriptures tell us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news is Christ was sacrificed on the cross for your sins, don't need to be good enough. You can't be good enough. You must stop counting on your goodness and count on Christ. Place your faith in his sacrifice for your sins. There is no way across that chasm after death. But today, today, you can put your faith in Christ and know you'll be in paradise. If you are unclear, heed the warning of this passage. Don't walk away. Talk to me. Talk to another elder. Talk to any member of this church. To join this church, you have to profess your faith in Christ and not in your works. There's someone here who can answer questions and walk you through this. If you stump them, I'm pretty sure they will find someone who can direct you to the answers you seek, the answers you need. There's more here, though, for us who are believers. This isn't just a passage for those who don't know Christ. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, I was sobered by the fact that I will be held accountable for what is in the Bible. We have Moses and the prophets. We also have the Gospels and the Apostles. Will we live according to it? We cannot pretend we had no way of knowing what was expected of us as followers of Christ. We can only confess that we didn't take it to heart. We had the truth. We knew how we were to live, but we went our own way. We blended our faith with the culture. We let it squeeze us into its mold. 
I'm thinking we need to be deep into this book because it contains the truth about life so deep into the Scriptures that we can't think the way the world thinks any longer. We see what God sees, and therefore, we walk in wisdom. I realize I'm at Newton Bible Church, and we study the Bible. We know our Bibles. But even here, I believe it is difficult to walk in truth. Living is the hardest thing, but that is where the reward is. That is where our reward is. Second point, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 19.23. This parable is like the quintessential illustration of this truth. Like the cat, the rich man went after the shiny ball of tinfoil in this world, and he missed heaven. He landed in torment. No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The other day I was looking at the parable of the soils, and I discovered I had been misquoting it. Not a delightful experience. I would say about the thorny ground, the worries and cares of this life choke out the word. But that's not what the text says. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But, hmm, there's a challenge here. This, this begs, this, 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 this parable begs the question, am I, am I handling my money? Am I handling my wealth? How am I doing? Does it possess me? Or am I the good steward? Am I seeking the wealth of this world? Or am I seeking the treasures of heaven? Here's the last thought. Christian, now is the time to share the good news. Today is the day to pray, to reach out to the lost around you. There's a, for some reason, I remember book titles. I don't read near as many books as book titles I seem to remember. This book was titled... One thing you can't do in heaven. I'm pretty sure there's more than one thing you can't do in heaven, but this book had one thing you can't do in heaven. It's a book on evangelism. You won't be sharing the gospel in heaven. Everybody there knows. You're going to have to do that here. We're going to have to do that here. There will be no more opportunity to share the gospel or even pray for their salvation. When you're in heaven, you can't help someone into paradise. You cannot comfort someone in hell. Christian, now is the time to share the good news. Today is the day to pray, to reach out to the lost around you. When you enter eternity, your time for that work is over. I feel I need a good dose of John chapter 9, verse 4 every day. Here Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me, 
as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. The music committee obliged me. I said, you know, there's this old hymn we used to sing when I was a kid. Uh, it's old Wichita Bible Church. I call this a Sunday night hymn. I always picture myself dreading school starting tomorrow, closing hymn, here it comes. Work for the night is coming. Work for the night is coming. A thought we want to have in our minds. We will not be sharing the gospel in heaven. Now is the time to be reaching out to the lost. Now is the time. Let's close in prayer. Father, this text is such a uh, sobering dose of reality. We live like our life here is forever, and it is very temporary. Said it's like a vapor, like a mist. And eternity will be coming, and it will be forever. Help us not to be fooled by this world. Help us to set our values aright. Help us to see this world as you see it, not as the surface sometimes that we get sucked into. Father, grant us the energy, the desire, the hunger, the passion to work, to work the works that you have called us to do. These things you ask in Jesus' name, amen.